Platinum Ranch, episode 15. I'm your host, Fez Geelan. The music you're hearing right now is a song called Mother You Are So Beautiful by some fundamentalist Mormon singers in Short Creek, Utah. I've been given permission to use this music, and it was obtained for me by my guest today, Christine Marie Cadis. Christine lives in Short Creek, a community that consists of two small towns on either side of the Utah-Arizona border, Hilldale, Utah, and Colorado City, Arizona. Short Creek was founded in 1913 by Mormon fundamentalists who broke away from mainstream Mormonism, also known as the Church of Latter-day Saints. Moving forward, you're going to hear references to the LDS and the FLDS. The mainstream, non-polygamous Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons who sometimes show up at your front door, are the LDS. The fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints who exist on the fringe in places like Short Creek, that's the FLDS. The Short Creek community was founded so that the FLDS could live in isolation and practice polygamy, the practice of men having multiple wives, a felony, and a controversial practice that was a tenant of early Mormonism, but later disavowed by the LDS. Today, Short Creek is still home to many FLDS Mormons. It's really a beautiful, physically, I mean, just to look at it, it's just breathtaking. Like right now, I'm sitting in my car and I'm looking at a pasture in a little valley, in the corner of a mountain, and it's filled with these beautiful horses. And then when I look a little over to the left, I see these red cliffs, these red mountains and trees. And so it's breathtaking. And different mountains in this town, it's like in a little hamlet, you know, in the corner of mountains. And you can tell what time of day it is based on which mountain is glowing red. It's amazing. And the people here, are are all so very friendly. No matter where you go, you will have somebody stopping to make sure you're okay. If your car, you know, is on the side of the road, you go into the store, everybody says hi. It is such a quaint, small town. And there's a lot of love here too. Even though there's so much trauma here and there's so many wounds, the reason they survive is there's also an enormous blanket of love. You know, there are issues but there's love.
2006, the current leader of the FLDS, Warren Jeffs, was arrested, and he's currently serving life in prison for various charges, including rape, incest, and child molestation. Shortly after his arrest, state authorities began dismantling the church's ownership of Short Creek. Most of the property in Short Creek was owned by an FLDS real estate trust called the United Effort Plan, or the UEP. The state seized this company, and many residents were evicted. Families with many children and wives were suddenly homeless. The government has made many attempts in the past to intervene with the Short Creek community, each time failing miserably, causing trauma and increasing the residents' distrust of the outside world. Christine Marie Cadis is not an FLDS member, or even LDS anymore, but she's built meaningful relationships with members of the FLDS community, against all odds. I wanted to talk to her about her work, but first I asked her to tell me about her background, what brought her to where she is now doing the work she does. I was not prepared for the story she was about to tell me. I need to give a content warning to the listeners. Between the 27 mark and about the 37 mark of this episode, there is some talk of sexual assault, sex trafficking, and suicide. Okay. I was raised in a small town in Michigan. My grandfather was a Methodist minister, but we never went to church. He sort of became a minister, you know, as a job and, you know, as um, pressure from his mother. So I began searching for a religion of my own because when I was younger, I had been bullied and rejected by my peers. I had a lazy eye and I was tongue-tied and came from the poor side of town. So I wasn't some popular girl when I was in elementary school. So in junior high, I began looking for religion. And in high school, I decided that Mormonism is for me, so mainstream Mormonism. And it filled a great hole in my life. It gave me a purpose. It made me happy. I ended up going to Brigham Young University, which is the big Mormon school. I was a missionary. I broke records on my mission. I married in the temple. I married a good Mormon guy. I lived the perfect Mormon life in many ways until it wasn't perfect anymore. (laughs) I saw a lot of inequalities that, that weren't working for me. You know, the man is the head of the home. And I'll give you an example. One time I was in a Russian program. My husband was in the military in Russian intelligence. And so he had to go to this school. It's called the Defense Language Institute. And we were just married. And I decided I would like to go to that school as well if they would allow a civilian to do so. They allowed me to do so. I did very, very well. I was usually either the number one achiever in the program or number two. So so I did very well, but my husband felt threatened by that. He told me he didn't feel like he had a wife to come home to. I was with him all the time. There was a sense of competition, and he said that he had prayed about it and decided that I should quit and stay home. I told him I prayed about it and decided that I should keep going because I'm doing so well and this will help me get college credit. But in the end, he reminded me that he had the priesthood and he was the head of the home. Therefore, I needed to essentially obey him. And I ended up quitting. You know, I had these experiences where I felt very devalued. My opinions didn't matter. 
When I went through the Mormon temple, I had to make a vow that I would obey my husband. And that struck me so wrongly that I decided I didn't want to finish going through the temple. And I tried to dash out of there. But I was, you know, intercepted by people and taken into the office of the temple president where he calmed me down and he reminded me that it was only to obey him as he obeyed God. He really tried to stress equality and made me feel better. So I always had these little rebellious moments where I didn't feel equal. When I divorced my husband, I felt so free. Now, don't get me wrong. He's a great guy. He, you know, we were still friends. We have holidays together and I have a lot of good things to say about him. And we've both grown. But that moment when I divorced him, I felt like, wow, now I can live a life the way that I want to live it. This is See You Later, I'm Gone by Robert Lester Folsom.
began searching again, wondering, is Mormonism for me or not? I ended up experimenting with life a little bit in a way that I never had before because I had lived a very pure life. I tried different religions and I um, I ended up sleeping with the man I had a relationship with and I got excommunicated from the Mormon church. And that was hard because this man and I were both single. You know, there was no deception involved. And I saw other people in the church do far worse things and they were not excommunicated. So that was a blow to me and it was psychologically abusive the entire repentance process to get back into the church. I would go to church with my children and sit there week after week after week while the sacrament tray, which was like the, you know, the Catholics would call it communion and it would get passed around and everybody would take it to renew their vows. But I couldn't. And I really couldn't explain to my young children why and why I was crying every Sunday. When I went into Sunday school, if if the teacher called upon me to speak, I had to say, I'm not allowed to speak. I was not allowed to say a prayer in church out loud. When I tried to pay my tithing, they gave my tithing back. I was not allowed to have a calling or, you know, or a volunteer job in the church. So basically, I'd moved from my, my farm in Michigan where all this happened to Southern California and because I was excommunicated, I really couldn't even get to know anybody, and there was no fellowship or support. It was a weekly reminder of how unworthy I was. It was traumatic for me. So then, finally, after many interviews and attempts to get reinstated into the church, I was allowed to be rebaptized, and that was such a happy day for me. I thought, "Wow, I made it." Normally, when people are excommunicated. They don't go back. They just wash their hands of the church and move on with their life. But the church was my life. I loved it. I believed in Joseph Smith. I believed in the Book of Mormon. And it was a day that was filled with euphoria to finally have my standing back and to know that I was worthy before God and could now possibly be with my children in eternity and all of the blessings that came with having a good relationship within the church. So now I'm determined to be the very best Mormon I can possibly be. And I prayed to Heavenly Father to help me find the man that I would be with for time in all eternity. So I prayed to reveal something about my future husband. Where would he go? What would he look like? Now keep in mind, Mormons believe that dreams can be a source of revelation from God. Joseph Smith had a dream and prophets have dreams. So dreams are something to look at. So in response to that dream, I saw a man that I thought was my future husband. It was really a profound dream. I couldn't even tell if I was awake or dreaming. It was so real. And this man stood there beside my bed in response to my asking Heavenly Father, who am I going to marry? So there's this man. He looked a little bit like uh, a young Brendan Fraser mixed with my ex-boyfriend, David. So I thought, oh, this is him. And I decided to move to Utah because I had, you know, I'd started a, a television show, believe it or not, 
I had a pilot and I even had Mickey Rooney. Uh, he signed a letter of intent to be the co-host and everything was going great for me. And I thought it was all because I'd made myself right with God. So I moved to Utah. I had this opportunity there and I thought, you know, you never know. Maybe my Mr. Right is right here in Utah. This is Blossom Deary with Somebody New. go to my very first Mormon singles dance and I see a man on the dance floor that looks like a young Brendan Fraser mixed with my ex-boyfriend David. I was like, whoa, that was him. It was the man from my dream. And to make matters even better, I guess, or worse, he was dancing with the elderly ladies. He wasn't dancing with all the pretty women. He was dancing with the elderly ladies, and that just won me. So I went over to him and commented, and he turned out to be somebody who represented himself as the next Joseph Smith. He was an ex-Mormon, 
but he let me know that he was actually like this character in the Book of Mormon called Samuel the Lamanite, who came from afar to bring the church back to its original and its true purposes. He also produced some documents and some witnesses that made me believe, not immediately, but after some time, I did believe that that was why I had the dream and I saw him. To me, that was like scientific evidence that there really was a God because he gave me this dream and then it manifests. And then this is the very man who shows me eight chapters of what is called the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. Do you know what that is? I've, yeah, I've heard of it. It's so when Joseph sort of found the plates, there was a portion that he said were sealed in, until the return of Christ. Well, is that right. right. I mean, to prepare for the return of Christ. When the, when, very good. When, when the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon would come forward, it would be in preparation for the return of Christ. And so I'm with this man who talks nonstop about helping the poor and needy who, you know, seems to be my destiny because of this dream. And he has eight chapters that he has already translated of the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. Now, keep in mind, I was a convert to the church. It was an extraordinary step for me to believe in the Book of Mormon in the first place. Nobody around me believed it. This belief resulted in just tons of happiness for me. I even wrote a book called Turn Your Little Ones into Book of Mormon Whiz Kids. The Book of Mormon was inspiring to me. It made sense to me. And I read it every day. I mean, I read it 32 times and I loved it. So now we have the new Joseph Smith. And I don't like to give him media, so I use a fake name for him. I'll just call him Adam. So Adam presented this. And it to me, it felt exactly the same as the spirit I felt when I got converted to the original Book of Mormon. Well. That was his door opener. Before he became a prophet, he tried to get me to sleep with him, but I would not because I had already been excommunicated and rebaptized because I had been physical with somebody when I was single. So I was not about to do that again. There's no way. Well, within a matter of weeks, this man morphs into a prophet and lets me know that he has the authority to seal us together, which is the Mormon word for marriage, for time and all eternity, just like they did in the days of the Bible, that he had the true priesthood power before God, and that I was to be his wife. So I thought I became his wife. Before I slept with him, I sat him down and I looked at him straight in the eyes, and I said, promise me, you're not deceiving me just to sleep with me. And he said, oh, how I wish I was deceiving you. This calling is so difficult. I wish I could have a normal life. I don't know why the Lord chose such a humble man as me. Anyway, so he did his convincing, and I thought I was his wife. And he had been a polygamist. He wasn't at that moment, but he said that was because his wives were not righteous enough. They were not capable of being in a plural marriage because they were too jealous and that the Lord took that away and that I was the new one and I was to be so righteous to um, accept polygamy and so on. Now, remember, I'm also trying to be the very best Mormon I can be and sometimes becoming 
a fundamentalist is the path for that because that's the way Joseph Smith did it. So none of this is out of the realm of, you know, church history. I ended up all of my belongings I had to sell to live the United Order. Okay, in in Mormon history, the United Order was sort of like communism, where everybody gave their items to the bishop's storehouse, and then the bishop's storehouse delivered to everybody else according to their just wants and needs. So there was equality. So nothing was your own. It was communal living. Many of the fundamental Mormon groups today practice the United Order as well. So you know, using things that I already believe in, playing upon my principles, he told me I needed to sell my all my extra things and put the money into a bank account for the poor and needy in the spirit of living the United Order. And to make a long story short, I was separated from my beloved children. He told me that I had to be separated from them because now that I was the prophet's wife and I would be supporting him in the translation of the rest of the sealed portion, they were not safe. That's how he got them away from me originally. But once they were away from me, once our goods were sold, I had very little to my name. I was told I needed to move among the poor and needy. And he described some places down in Salt Lake City where I should go. I chose one of them and I moved into this resident hotel, which he said was exactly where I needed to be and that not even an angel in heaven would be able to take me away from this place. He said he knew exactly where it was and that he had friends in there. So I had picked the right place and he confirmed that I was not to leave. So here I am in a resident hotel with 80 residents who, with the exception of one lady that was over 80 and one lady that was in a a wheelchair, I was the only female walking around the halls with 80 men, most of whom were ex-cons. That's where they went when they got out of prison. And there were no bathrooms in the room. I had to shower in the men's shower with no shower curtains. Okay, so you can imagine that I ended up, I was raped, beaten, robbed, and a handler shows up who indicates that he knows my prophet. And You know, um, my prophet was in jail by this time for violating a protective order against one of his ex-polygamous wives. So he had somebody else, you know, coming in to handle me. So men were being brought to me. And if I did not comply, there were consequences. And men came from prison. I don't know what deals that Adam made with these men, but... I got in trouble with him for crying because I cried every time I became suicidal. And I cried out to the other believers, especially this one believer. Her name was Sister Johansson. And Sister Johansson, I thought, was like an elderly lady helping him. But it turned out that my prophet got a a, um, a revelation now that Sister Johansson was to be his wife legally. And I didn't understand that because I thought I was his wife. And I thought, wait, is this polygamy? But I was then demoted into being what I call the slave wife. I was told by my prophet that my goal was to continue to support them financially and to obey every command that I was given from him if I wanted to be 
reunited with my children and with my children forever in eternity, which is something Mormons believe that families are forever. So here he said, I had to go through these things to pass tests because I had to descend below all things because I was the prophet's wife. So these things are happening to me. I'm crying out. I let the prophet and my new pseudo sister wife know that I am now suicidal. I am in trauma. I had to get medical help. And I, beside myself, I was told that there were three men watching my every move. And that if I ever tried to follow the prophet when he was out or do anything, that, that my life would be taken. And I was worried about my children as well. So here I am. I'm, you know, at the time, I didn't know that this is what it was. But today, we understand sex trafficking. That was where I ended up when I opened the door to believe in this man that I thought was a prophet. But he was not a prophet at all, of course. He was an anti-Mormon, ex-Mormon, in my opinion, sociopath. And one man that he sent to sleep with me from jail came, and I did what I, you know, uh, was required to do to survive. And to my surprise, this man started crying. I mean, keep in mind, this place where I'm living is not a hotel where they, you know, you have your bed made and it's nice. It was like condemnable. In fact, it was condemned and burned, burned down. I was like in a room the size of a small cell. There were cockroaches. There was no air conditioning in the, and the heat would rise. It was like living in an attic. I couldn't feel my body anymore from the trauma. I couldn't feel my arms or anything. And I remember laying there thinking, there can't be a God. I mean, what is wrong with me that I pass all these tests? I make it back to the church. I live a beautiful life. I was once named Young Mother of the Year. I was once Mrs. Michigan. I, I once had this TV show just about to go that would have helped, you know, all these, it was a mommy and me sort of show. And what am I doing in here? Being raped by men and, and I can't do anything about it. And, you know, the police even came one time when, when a man was threatening to kill me and I was too afraid to tell them. They didn't ask. They didn't ask any questions. They just got the man away. And I wanted so much for them to ask me questions. But by this time, you know, my critical thinking is completely gone. It's gone. I am just trying to survive. And every ounce of my body feels like a bag of just pain, suffering, and garbage. And I blamed myself and I blamed my own unworthiness. I didn't understand anything. And the communications that I got back from the prophet and my new pseudo sister wife were for me to stop playing the victim and to um, continue to redouble my efforts to bless them. And um, there was really no reprieve. I remember planning my funeral and I put all the pictures of my children on the floor around me in a semicircle because I was going to, I couldn't bear life anymore. Anymore, It was too hard to be alive. And I didn't see a way out. It did not occur to me that he could be lying, I, that any human being would intentionally put a woman through this type of torture. So I thought the problem was me. And um, then this man that came from, from prison that was crying, he was really sweet. I showed him my pictures and, and I talked about some of the things that had been happening and he um he left but when he came back he brought sister johansen with him and that he said 
Christine. Adam is a fraud. He's an atheist, and we're atheists. And we're so sorry that we helped him deceive you and that we helped exploit you. He said that they would have told me sooner because my life was hanging by a thread, and they knew it. And I asked the lady, why didn't you, when I begged you for the truth, why did you lie to me? And she said that he told her that if she told me the truth, that I would die. And he even had wanted me to give my children up for adoption. This is how cruel he was. And this is what he believed that I did, but I didn't. I just let them be with their father, who I shared custody with while I was going through this stuff for the most part. So when I learned that all these things were just a cruel form of entertainment and experimentation. I started rocking on the floor, on my knees, rocking back and forth. Like my life had just passed before my eyes. And I just started wailing because everything was gone. You know, he had just taken everything from my life. My, you know, some very special possessions that I had. My money, my car, my dreams, almost my children, my dignity, everything. And this was his sadistic entertainment. And thank goodness that this man was a hero. The man who saved me was a hero. I would not be here today. I I mean, I had made a couple of suicide attempts at that time, and I would not be here today if he would not have said, I can't do this to a woman. So when I got out of all this, I needed help. And the People who, you know, knew were very angry with me and people did not want to help me. They said, you made your bed, you sleep in it. Law enforcement barely even considered me a victim. They really didn't consider me a victim except maybe a victim of fraud because they said, well, you believed in him. As if believing in somebody who is deceiving you and harming you somehow makes it okay. Well, I'll tell you. I've learned a lot since then. And I think that one of the biggest things that re-traumatized me was when people believed that I deserved what happened to me. And now I'm finishing my PhD in psychology and such. But one thing that is well studied is that when you have a rape victim disclose a rape, the way that people respond to her initially can influence whether she gets healed relatively quickly or whether it turns into long-lasting post-traumatic stress disorder. The way I was responded to made everything worse. And the justification was that I believed in something irrational. So, you know, I should be punished for that. Today, I know that I take responsibility for what happened to me in terms of my faulty thinking. I've changed my faulty thinking, but I do not and will not ever excuse what was done to me as having been my fault. I did that for many years. I blamed myself. I would not talk about it. I was so humiliated. I mean, everybody else in the world is confirming that I should blame myself. How could I not? But now I know that that is absolutely false and absurd. Any woman who has been harmed by a rapist needs to realize that the blame belongs to the rapist. Doesn't matter what she did. No matter what she did, she did not deserve to be raped. Even if she's a woman who is in prostitution, who's in a room naked with a man, she still has the right to say no and not be raped. 
So this was a huge lesson for me. I took lots of therapy. I educated myself. It took a few years, but I learned about cults. I learned about mind control. I learned the power of, of, of undue influence and the abuse of power and started to heal. Suddenly, I realized that there's a lot of women out there like me who had been exploited by religious leaders and that had been exploited by pimps. So I started an organization called Voices for Dignity, and I started helping survivors of human trafficking. And I also would take in people that had come out of fundamentalist groups, you know, some young people, and try to help them get on their feet. I was an anti-polygamy activist, and, you know, I knew my stuff. (laughs) I wrote papers and gave talks and PowerPoint presentations and educated people. Then I decided to move to Short Creek, and that brings us to today. This is One Day Will Come by The Silt. and I decided to move to Short Creek. I came here to help the women who had left the church primarily. And before that, I'd been coming to do various services. So I've been involved with this community about six years total. But three years ago, we decided to move here. Mainstream Mormonism is very adamant to draw the line between what they believe and the because they no longer believe in polygamy. I mean, that was disavowed in the late 1800s. But the fundamentalists that kept going and the people here have a long heritage with Mormon pioneers and founders and so on. So they live plural marriage and believe in the United Order, which is the communal living and so on. And I had read many things in the media about these people and watched endless documentaries and read books. And one message 
that did not come through was that the people who are still here are really kind, sweet, innocent people. I believe that every FLDS person was part of this criminal organization, that they were out to defraud the government, that they would vandalize my house and my vehicle, that they would never speak to us, that they would throw rocks at us. I met some FLDS ladies in a gas station and I I told them that I had seen some evictions going on and I couldn't understand what was happening and that I that I took some photos and my husband posted them on Facebook. Elderly people being evicted in wheelchairs, handicapped people being evicted, um, people with oxygen tanks being evicted and crowds of people would stand around FLDS people, these evictions, and try to be a support to these people who are getting forcefully taken out of their homes by law enforcement. And I mean, I couldn't understand it. And so I asked these ladies about it. I told them that when we posted these pictures on Facebook, we were attacked for questioning and for standing up for these people and saying, this can't be right. Well, that was the beginning of a friendship with the FLDS people. They couldn't believe that some outsiders actually stood up for them. And then I learned their side of the story about what is going on with the evictions. And what is happening is that as part of the United Order, in 1942, they they put together this land trust to live in the principle of the United Order, which is let's donate all of our lands into this trust. And then the bishop will decide, you know, who gets to live on this one acre and who gets to live there. And when the people would become a certain age, the men, they would get an acre of property to build a home. And they had to sign a document stating they knew it was not their property and that the home would be a priest's home. Everybody helped build it together. They build homes together. They build businesses together. And if somebody leaves the church, they they have to leave the community. They cannot come back to the community with their worldly ways and say, I want to live in this house next to you. This is, you know, religious land and they're not allowed to do that. But a court in Utah determined that those managing the land trust that were FLDS were not managing it properly. So they took it over. And in the process of the state taking over the land trust, they re- formed it to make sure that there were no requirements to be in the religion in order to be given some land and and a home. So you have this religious land trust that owned all the land in this town, which they believed was a sacred town like the Vatican. They believed that Christ came here once upon a time after he was resurrected, that he visited here and they were going to have a temple here. And so this was all very sacred property to them. Now the state comes in and strips the trust of any religious requirement. So it's like saying to the people in the Vatican that this land is no longer yours. And because you mismanaged the trust, we're going to make a new trust full of people who are ex-Catholics. And the ex-Catholics, perhaps some are even anti-Catholics, are going to determine who gets to stay in the land. So this board, approved by the judge, create a system that the FLDS and XFLDS will have to both abide by in order to stay in their home. The problem is that the XFLDS are considered apostates, and Brigham Young told the members to leave apostates alone severely. The FLDS believe they cannot make a deal or go into business with or mingle with 
apostate. So they cannot sign, for them to sign an occupancy agreement with the new UEP trust that's filled with apostates, that would be denying their religion. That would be like telling a Christian that they have to sign a rental agreement that includes the fact that they do not believe that Christ is the Son of God in order to stay in their home. So the apostates all knew that the current members would never sign these agreements. So what happens? We're here and we're seeing eviction after eviction after eviction. Trailers pulling out and semis pulling out and containers. Everybody exiting. A mass exodus, it seemed like. And that made me sad because I just moved here and I just thought, you know, well, maybe I could be of some help. And when I met these two ladies in the gas station and they told me their side of the story and started introducing me to other people and I started to learn of the trauma of evictions. Then I looked up the psychological literature. Evictions are traumatic. The loss of a home is so traumatic that in 2009, during the financial crisis when all these people were losing their homes, there were over 900 suicides related to loss of home. The government even put up a suicide hotline. Evictions have a long-term financial toll that they take on people. It takes a long time to get back on your feet. Once you have an eviction on your record, then how can you rent someplace new? These are a sheltered, reclusive people. Some of them don't have credit. They don't have rental history. They didn't even have mortgages in this town. I had to teach people what mortgages were. So you have a very vulnerable population that's going through forceful evictions in mass. When it's eviction time, they do like 12 evictions on the same place. So the neighbors can't even help each other because they're all being evicted. Now, there are FLDS people whose taxes were paid on the homes in full. They built the house. They never stopped paying the taxes and they still got evicted. They got evicted because they wouldn't pay a $100 a month administration fee for the UEP trust, which was continuing to sue them and evict them. They didn't want to continue funding the people who are causing them to experience what I call cultural cleansing. So they put their foot down and they said, we would rather move than violate our religion. And the people who left the church, let me say this. The people who left the church have been through hell. They have been traumatized and their stories are to be validated. And by no means am I taking sides. However, I believe that the FLDS do have rights and they should be allowed to survive in the town of their heritage without a requirement that causes them to violate their religion. So you can see why I think this way after learning my experience. I don't think that people who believe in something that's unpopular need to continually be re-traumatized and punished. Outsiders looking into the situation have said, the more you beat them over the head with a bat, maybe they'll wake up. Well, I don't agree with that at all. I agree with harm reduction. Let's care about these people and try to help reduce the harm of evictions the harm of the loss of their businesses. They've lost eight out of 10 of their of the buildings that were used as schools. They lost their homes. They lost their cemetery. They lost everything. If you look up the definition of cultural cleansing, that is what I believe. This is not a popular belief because the FLDS are so stigmatized 
because of the information in the news about their prophet or about different leaders that, you know, have been sent to prison, that all of the members of the church get painted with these crimes when, in fact, they're innocent and heaping more harm upon them accomplishes nothing. And we're talking about the majority of the FLDS are still children. So I fight for the children. I don't want any children to get evicted. Teachers were evicted. Children were evicted. Now they're, you know, spread around the country and they don't have the social support system that they once had when they were here. When they were here, they could call brother so-and-so to come fix the plumbing. In the outside world, they have to pay $700. I mean, it's an entirely different world. And some people believe that by forcing them into the outside world, they will learn, they will have to learn to assimilate. I believe that this is an ethnic group. Ethnicity is not based on the color of your skin. It's a sociological construct based on a shared heritage, religious beliefs, rituals, um, sacred spaces, and so on. They have their own unique way of dress, their unique words for things. They're, they're definitely their own unique culture. So I'm here now in the middle of two worlds, the world of people trying to heal from having left the church or the things that happened in their families or things that happened at the direction of the prophet that, that just is inhumane suffering for them, which I can relate to. But then we have the people that are still in the church losing everything. There is no, there's not even a place in this town where the FLDS can use their food stamp cards because they can't go into buildings that used to be their businesses that were taken over by apostates. So it's difficult for them to get food. Their food processing plant that would help the poor was taken over. Everything is being turned upside down in their world. So here we are, and we and and we come up with a workaround so that the FLDS don't have to sign the occupancy agreement with the UEP. And the workaround is for them to write a letter of their intention to continue to care for their home and pay the taxes and then sign the letter, you know, give me the receipts that they've paid the county because they won't pay the UEP. So they give me the receipts, they give me the letter, and I go in and, and deliver it to the trust. And sometimes we have to work out deals and payment programs. But as a result of this workaround, for the first time, FLDS are capable of staying in their homes. And we've helped, my charity has helped over 1,500 people so far. And not just with evictions, but we help with educational resources. Um, we bring in workshops. I have now three FLDS volunteers who became sexual assault victims advocates to help within their people. We help encourage the FLDS to, you know, think for themselves, fight for themselves a little bit. They don't want to fight for themselves. They don't want to stand up and say, that's our chapel. Don't take it. They're told not to fight. Their chapel was just taken too. Now things are calming down in Colorado City because there is a system where they can stay. So that's, that's, that's what I do. I help people who are ex-FLDS as much as I can, and I help the people that are FLDS. And my frame of mind is that I'm trying to do harm reduction. I'm trying to promote literacy, trying to put together a reading resource, you know, room, which, you know, 
some people would call it a library, to help with my push for increasing literacy. We have a little boutique now in Colorado City, right next to the post office. It's called the Short Creek Cottage. And this is a building where the FLDS women and, and some men and some children will make crafts. So it's a distribution outlet. And we also sell cupcakes and cookies. So that's really great because they, they don't have places to work here anymore. So the single mothers with 11 children or, or 14 children have a difficult time surviving. So that's what we're doing. I mean, I have um, I have a wonderful board of directors. I'm not a one-woman show. My husband is very active and helping as well. And the FLDS have turned out, in uh, well, from what we have seen, they have been through so much trauma. I have seen so many tears over their losses that the world just didn't acknowledge before. The FLDS will now give us permission to post pictures on Instagram and Facebook because I've explained to them that they are not humanized. They're stigmatized as if they're all the same and that those pictures help people realize that there is still happiness happening here. Parents still love their children. They do fun things. They climb trees. They dance. They make their own home movies. They find all sorts of ways to have fun. They ride horses. We have a, a Mustang sanctuary that we're putting together to help, you know, do equine therapy and or and horse-related healing for the people here. We also distribute donations. I mean, people, some of these children haven't had a new pair of shoes in years. And so wonderful people from the outside have responded to my social media and shipped in shoes and socks and books and coat. And we also help distribute food from the food bank here. We help it to get into the FLDS. We help them get therapy services, which is something that they never did before unless they were court ordered. But they have been going through so much trauma that we've been able to build trust with certain therapists and some FLDS people going through difficult things have really felt blessed by the gifted work of these therapists, helping them understand. So th there are rules against them communicating with apostates, but there's no rule against them communicating with just simply someone who's non-FLDS. Exactly, exactly. And even... Even communicating with apostates, I see more and more communication going on. Some people are very strict and do completely cut them off, but others, you know, live their religion differently and stay in touch with people, you know, here and there that have left the church. If apostates, which, which, you know, I'm, I apologize to the people who've left the church to use that term because it's, it's, you know, if it's hurtful to them. So the people who left the church, if they are with me and and I'm with somebody at FLDS, there's a kindness that exchange that goes on. I don't see the, the FLDS being rude to the ex-members when they're with me. If they're working together in business, for example, there are ex-members that are EMTs and there are members that are EMTs and they have to work together in the fire department and they work together in the post office and they work together in the city hall. So if there's a reason for them to communicate, you know, they do. It's maybe it was more strict in the past, but it's just very heartbreaking for, uh, it's heartbreaking when somebody leaves the church because 
they don't have the full access to their family anymore. And it's heartbreaking for the people still in the church. They cry and cry and cry when somebody leaves, almost as if it's a death in the family. You know, and I I, I, I don't like this policy at all. I loathe it. And my SLDS friends know I don't. That's one thing where I can't I can't bear that policy. And I also, I mean, it's, I can't argue with them about it, but it's, I can't, I, I just don't agree with it, but I let, I mean, it's their thing. They're going to do what they're going to do, but I like to make reconnections, kind reconnections whenever I can. And I don't, you know, I personally also just can't stomach when people are deemed unworthy after what I've been through, you know, um, I Whenever we classify people and we say you're, you did not pass your test. You're worthy. You're not worthy. It's so hurtful and humiliating. Humiliation is the most intense human emotion. It it also is a pain that lasts the longest. We we remember our humiliating experiences longer than we remember the pain of childbirth. I mean, you can remember the pain of childbirth. But when you remember it, you don't relive it. When you remember being humiliated, the pain is in the brain. So you can, anything can trigger it and it brings up all the memory networks. And so it, it's a, it's a horrible emotion to have. And so that's one thing that I really feel compassionate for, whether people have, have left the church, have been, you know, sent away or whether they're, whether they're considered apostates or whether they're in the church and they're not the favored wife or anything where, where there's humiliation. It's, it's, you know, I just want to reach out and hug everybody and tell them you're okay. You are worthy. You know, you are special. You are important. It's this, that's another hard thing for me to, to stomach, but I can't, you know, go around and tell the FLDS. Well, I do a little bit. I just say that's a hard one for me to, to, I just feel so sorry for these people, but I'm not going to change their religion or take away their right to believe it or do it. Or, you know, I'm not here to change them. I'm not here to, I mean, the only change I would, I would like to make is to make things better. I'm like to change them that way, like to help them get more resources, to help them get more educated if that's what they want, you know, but I'm not here to cast any negative light on their religion because it is their source of happiness. It is their purpose in life. You know, my specialty in my, in my academics is positive psychology and you know, traditional psychology is the study of mental illness. Positive psychology is the study of mental wellness, what people do right, what makes people happy, what contributes to happiness, what causes communities to flourish. It's what's, what is good about people. And I believe that that attitude has helped me because I do see what's good about the FLDS culture. And there are good things about it. Nobody ever says that you know, in the media, but the people from this culture say they had the best childhood ever, you know, and it was wholesome, a lot of children, a lot of picnics, a lot of, you know, a lot of happy memories as well. But 
getting back to religion, religion gives people a sense of meaning, that there's more to their being on this earth and just living and dying. It gives a sense of community. And when you feel like you're doing good for humanity and pleasing the higher purpose, it brings joy into your heart. I don't have the desire to pull people out of something that they believe makes them happy. That's all there is to it. I mean, I give people access to true information so they can make their own decisions. And I don't sugarcoat anything, but I'm not here on a mission to, you know, get the FLDS out of out of their religion. When people have come to me, like some parents have come to me and, and have said, you know, my 19-year-old wants to leave, my 21-year-old wants to leave, my 16-year-old wants to leave, can you help find them a safe place in the world and help them transition? Then I work on creating a gentle transition and help them to the best of my ability. The essence of my work here is to try to reduce harm, to educate and to empower. So there you have it. Thank you very much, Christine, for speaking with me. Thank you, listeners, for listening. Thank you, Antennas, for having me. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher, SoundCloud. Please leave a review or tell a friend. I'd really appreciate that. If you'd like to see some wonderful photographs and videos of life in Short Creek, follow Christine on Instagram at Christine Marie Katas, K-A-T-A-S, and look up her charity, Voices for Dignity. Thanks again for listening. I'll talk to you soon. This is Peace, Peace by Bill Evans. <laughs>